Reach Young Adult Ministry Sermons online from Tuesday, January 12th, 2020 by Philip Jackson, pastor to young adults at Evergreen Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma from the series In This Together entitled Seeing Others First from Philippians 2, 1 through 11. series of lessons this month about unity and how God has called us as followers of Christ to be unified in our purpose and in our uh, our our walk of life all the things that make us uh, who we are we're called to be uh, together as a unit last week we talked about walking worthy of the gospel walking according to the citizenship of of heaven, that there is a standard, that there is an expectation that if we are children of God, that we're going to walk a certain way, that we're going to talk a certain way, and we are going to be uh, conducting our lives in a way that is worthy of the gospel. And the Apostle Paul, he calls us to walk together because we are walking in this, in this constant uh, environment where there are people trying to undermine us. They are trying to play political games. They're trying to manipulate the system in order to get their own favor. And so what it looks like for us is this constant, almost not defensive position, but we, we look at the world and we understand that the world who is outside the church, they, they don't want us, they, they hate us, They're, they are naturally provoked by us because the truth is provocative. And then you have pressures within the structure of the family of God where people, they, uh, they compromise themselves and they begin to take back over the lordship of their life. And as a result of that sin, what happens is that they naturally become divisive people. We talked about last week how uh, we have a warning light in our community that, that as soon as there's division, that's a sign for us that someone is not living a godly life. They're not living in a godly way, totally submitting themselves to God's word. And so the first sign of sin is insecurity, right? If you think about the Garden of Eden, what happened when Adam and Eve ate the fruit is that they had this this natural, quick, instant insecurity within themselves. And so what do they do? They hid. In Genesis 3, we start to see that take place, that the natural byproduct of, of living a sinful life is that we are insecure. And so since we're insecure, we hide ourselves and we lash out to try to to, to divert attention away from the intentional hurt that we have caused ourselves because of our rebellion against God. And so that's a natural warning light for us. Whenever you see the, the division within your friend group, within your family, within even your church body, what that means is that someone is not walking with God. And so what happens is they go out there and they try to build coalitions. They try to, try to bring people to their side to prove their point, to make themselves justified in their opinion. And so what happens is that the, the family begins to suffer. And so Paul is, was telling us last week that we need to walk worthy of the gospel. We need to walk worthy of what's consistent with being a child of God, being a child of heaven. And so tonight what we're going to look at, we're going to look at the next couple of verses in Philippians chapter 2. We're going to look at what, what, he, what he sent to the Philippians and how he calls them to to humility, to, to Christian humility, to seeing other people first. And then we're going to finish with the, with the most incredible example of humility in God's Word, which is the picture of Jesus and how He laid down His life for us. But not just that He laid His life down and sacrificed Himself to pay for our sin, but in the ultimate act of humility, He served us by taking on what wasn't His to take on just so he could show that he loves us. So take your Bibles and turn over to Philippians chapter 2, 
And we're going to start in verse 1. Now, remember what, what Paul is talking about here. There is this division that's happening within the church. There's people who are trying to play this political game with him, and they're trying to manipulate others to increase their profile. You know, right? We, we've seen these people. We, we've met these people in our lives. These are people who are constantly obsessed with their status, and they want other people to submit themselves to what they want. And so there's this manipulative kind of game that's played, right? They're trying to, 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 to make people do what they want for their own gain. So let's start in verse 1. In verse 1 in Philippians chapter 2, he says, so remember what we talked about last week, all these things walking worthy of the gospel. Um, but he says here, he says in verse 1, if, there, if then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Okay, let's talk about the, that for a second. So we're going to start here with an appeal for unity. That's the first thing that we're going to talk about, is an appeal for unity in these first two verses. So what he's saying is that we want to have un- unity over individuality. So he says, in my version, it says, if then. Your Bible might say, therefore. Anytime you see these types of words, what he's saying is, that, is because of what I just said, we're going to go in this direction. Because of this foundational idea that we're supposed to walk worthy of the gospel, now I want you to focus on this thing. He says, because we're called to unity and to see the resistance of the world against us, Paul now directs us towards godly living and where we are supposed to focus our energy. <clears throat> <clears throat> excuse me, he, he begins with this, this list of obvious promises that, that God has given us for living a, 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 a good life. So he starts out here by, he says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, let me explain that. So the Greek here, one of the great things about the Apostle Paul, if you're doing word studies or if, you're, if you are studying God's words specifically with how Paul writes, he likes to take um, an idea and he will list out different things uh, and there'll be this running thought, right? And he'll give you um, thought number one, thought number two, thought number three, and all these things come together to, to form this picture. So that's what we're going to do with these words here. So he starts out with any encouragement in Christ. So the original Greek word that's in here, uh, it means to encourage, right? This is the application that it means that we're supposed to, uh, it describes calling somebody to each other. So this is like, um, this is like, when you were a kid and you were playing or you were uh, in your room hanging out with your friends or whatever, and your mom would call you to dinner, that, that she would be like, come, you know, come to me, rally to me. This idea that, that, that we're supposed to, uh, that the encouragement in Christ is that, is that because of Jesus, he encourages all of us to come to him. That's what this is describing. What he's saying is that our, our encouragement, it comes from our proximity to Christ. Right, So he calls us to himself, and that in and of itself is what connects us together. Right, So we're connected to Christ, each of us individually, and what that does is that draws us together because he is the central point of all of this. He's the thing that brings all of us together. So then he goes on to say, if any consolation of love. Now the words here that he uses to describe this, the love, we've talked about this before, that this is agape love, this is godly love. This type of a love looks at somebody and, and they desire strongly that they are made whole and right and perfect. This is what God, how God loves us. This is how God sees us, is this idea that we are called to see other people as needing 
a divine in a divine position in their life. This is something that is going to affect their lives. We want them to be able to see God move and to make them perfect. And so what he's calling us to here is he's calling us to, um, <clears throat> in the context of this love, he says that there's any um, persuasiveness about God's love. That's what the original words mean here. He's talking about how because we see people with God's eyes, we're summoning them to this rallying point that we want them to walk in pure godliness. We rally to Christ. If there's any consolation of love, if there's any, any of the thing that brings us together, it's this idea that, that we want to bring people together and see them walk in victory. But then he says this. He says, if there's any uh, fellowship in the Spirit or fellowship with the Spirit, the word here for fellowship is the Greek word koinonia. So koinonia means um, what you would think of. Fellowship, bringing together, the big English word is community. If there is any community in the Spirit. And what he's talking about here is he is describing the interconnectedness of believers to each other through the Holy Spirit. Right? So not only is Christ the drawing, the, the drawing point where all of us come to, but also we have this, with this underlying attitude of agape love, And now we have this fellowship, this community in the Spirit. So what he's doing is he's building a case here for us to be able to to see our community with God's eyes. He is calling us to to understand that we are all interconnected. There is no way that you're going to be able to divide things up. In fact, this is why the Christian life is not an independent solo sport. The reason why we are drawn together in unity is because God designed it that way for us to be a unit together. And so for us, as we're walking through this, we need to understand that every decision that you make is not going to affect just you. It's going to affect everyone around you. It's going to affect everybody that you're connected to, right? If, 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 If there is one light bulb on a strand of Christmas lights that's not working, what happens? The whole strand doesn't work. You can't make independent decisions about yourself, about your life, about your own holiness, and not affect other people. The reason why this is so, so important is because we have bought into the lie, the idea that I'm autonomous, I'm independent, I'm my own person. And so I can make decisions, and I can, I can abuse God's grace, and I can be offensive to God's people, and I can take advantage and take, I can take liberties with what God has, the freedom that God has given me, all while we deny the fact that when we do that and we walk in our own pride, we hurt God's people. This is the picture of an addict who is continually abusing their life, thinking that they're just messing up themselves. But the truth is that everyone that's connected to them that loves them is being punished as well. We have a fellowship in the Spirit then he goes on to say this. He says, if, if there's any affection and mercy, another word for mercy here is compassion. Your Bible may say compassion. But again, going back to the original language here, what he's describing, the, the affection, the feeling that we have here, in the old school, like in the biblical, in the biblical sense, um, the word literally is translated bowels or, your, or your, your insides, your guts. And the reason why that is, I know that sounds kind of, kind of funky in today's culture, 
But the way that it is, is when you, when you were doing something, like for instance, maybe it was your third grade play at school, and you had a part, and you had to come out, and you had to say some lines. Before you came out on stage, what was your tummy doing? Oh my goodness, it was, turning, it was just turning over itself. It was just churning. And wh- what's happening is that your emotions are being stirred, and so your insides are turning into jelly. So that's what we're descri- describing here. That's why the emotions were seated in in your, in your bowels, in the, in, the, in the biblical sense. And so what we would translate that to in our, in our modern-day culture is our heart, right? Our feelings, our seat of emotions. This is where we feel deeply. What Paul is saying is he's saying if there is any deep affection, right, any serious emotion and compassion, the, compa- the word that he describes here using compassion, it describes a godly compassion, it describes a compassion that is rooted in this, in this truth that, that Jesus is the rallying point and that we see people with the Father's eyes. We want them to, to, we see them with agape love and in that we're connected with the Spirit and this moves us to deep, sincere, emotional response to see our family members who are suffering. This appeal for unity, what it does is it goes back to our connectedness and our unity. It's not something that, that is created by us, Right? It is, it is established and it is maintained and it is sustained through the power of God. That's what Paul is saying, that this is a divine action that takes place in your life. This is a real and tangible thing. Our community is not just a word that we throw around. If we're doing this right, if we're applying ourselves to God's word, if we are being obedient to God's word, this is true community to see people with God's eyes and to know that we are connected at the most intimate and sincere level. Paul's telling us that those who are God's children, they see their spiritual family with intense loyalty. We are driven with the same passionate desire to see others in a right relationship with the Father. What Paul wants us to see here is that in these two verses, he's saying that this is a big deal. Our unity is a big deal. And that means that it's bigger than just us feeling satisfied with our community. What it means is that we, as a member of this unified group, we take it personally. There are a lot of people in our culture right now in America who are slamming the bride of Jesus. The church. The church did this. The church did that. There, is all, there are all of these feelings about the church that somehow the church has offended and has, it has violated its moral position. But the truth is that every single one of those cases of a divisive and angry heart is rooted in hurt. That hurt is responded to with hate. Because what does a sinful heart do? A sinful heart hides. A sinful heart is defensive. A defensive heart wants to distract people from the truth. A defensive heart is divisive. And so if we're going to look at this correctly, if we're going to look at God's people, if we're going to look at what God's priority is for us, we need to understand that this is something that God has established for us in no uncertain terms. So Paul starts with this appeal to unity, but then he moves into an appeal for us to see others first, to to look beyond ourselves, beyond our own satisfaction. He wants us to, uh, to be rooted in this true understanding of, of, of being like God. So look at verse 3. 
as we look at the appeal to see others first. Verse 3 says this, it says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. So in verse 3 and 4, he's saying as a result of having this godly concern for others, he calls us to this standard that's worthy of who we represent. So again, we've got another list here. He, he, he talks about not doing anything out of selfish ambition um, or conceit or in humility, right? Consider all these things. So think about this. The first thing he says is do nothing. Let's focus on that for a second. So in my Bible, it says do nothing. Um, yeah, that's in English. But as is a challenge with, with, with language, whenever you try to translate from one language to another, sometimes you lose meaning. So let me try to do my best to, uh, to give you the, the proper understanding of what Paul is saying here by what we understand is do nothing. He is saying something like this. Never. Never, ever, 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 never, ever, never, don't do it ever, ever in your life. Don't even tolerate it at all. Never, ever. Never. Do this. He is emphatically saying, do not ever do this. This is very, very strong terms. Absolutely not is what he's meaning. Selfish ambition in the Greek, in the original language, the the deeper meaning is electioneering. This is like a politician running for office. He says, do not ever use God's community as a tool for manipulation. He says, be very careful. Watch for this. This is something that is incredibly dangerous. In one of the the commentaries that I was reading, it describes it like this. This idea of of having selfish ambition. It says, a courting distinction, a desire to put oneself forward, a partisan and factious spirit which does not disdain low arts, partisanship, being factious. This is somebody who is manipulative to their core. He's saying never play political games with God's people because God takes this type of thing very personally. Paul's telling them to absolutely never, ever tolerate manipulation or political game playing. This is something that we see all the time in the church. If I had this position, then I am, I'm maybe one more step up on the rung of the ladder to be spiritual. Maybe God loves me a little bit more. Maybe I'm a little bit more important. But the truth is that we're all the same in God's eyes. And it doesn't matter if you're a pastor. It doesn't matter if you're a Sunday school leader. It doesn't matter if you're a small group shepherd. It doesn't matter what position you have. We are all the same. And to manipulate others for some sort of a personal gain, some sort of personal gratification, is sinful. It's rebellious against God. And then he says this, he says, in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. So the language here describes, let me see if I can understand this correctly or communicate this correctly. So humility, right? We, we, we talk about humility a lot in here. There's a quote by C.S. Lewis that I love. It's, it's humility is, is thinking, it's not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. We, it seems like we have this idea that, there are, that there's two responses, right? There's two responses to our, our looking at our own value. One of them says, I am awesome. I'm great. 
there are, God is really lucky that he has me. And then you have the other side that says, what would God want for me? I am worthless. I'm a dirty, rotten sinner. I'm a piece of garbage. Why would God use me? I've been used up. I've been hurt by people. I've been used. I've been abused. I've been taken advantage of. If God, God knows all the things that I've done, and he's got a very low opinion of me. In fact, I think he just hates me because I can never do anything right. But you see, the challenge is that both of those things actually are expressions of pride. Because the, the thing that makes pride so offensive to God is it takes away his identity as the judge and it puts, us, puts it squarely in our hands to where we become the judge. We become the one who establishes value. We become the ones who says who is and is not worthy. And this is just as sinful as anything else. Because James tells us there's, there is only one lawgiver who is able to save and destroy. Who are you to judge another person? Who are you to judge yourself? Paul tells us in his writings that I have one judge, the Lord. I don't even judge myself. He says that in 1 Corinthians. And so we've got to make sure, make sure that we understand that humility is something that is not something that we can take as our priority, giving value to everything. One definition that I read about humility is a deep knowledge of one's own moral littleness. He says, uh, in humility, consider others. Consider, another word for that is regard. In other words, what that means is to make other people more important than yourself. Paul's calling us to be passionately humble and to look out for each other with no consideration for ourselves other than to recognize and embrace our own moral inadequacy. What he's telling us is that we have to be humble. We have to understand that God is the one who determines who is and is not valuable. That is not our job. He says, in all humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Understanding that, that Christ is the rallying point, that we have the eyes of the Father to see people as God sees them, and then also to be connected in the Spirit. What that does is that makes us not look out for our own interests. We've got, we don't have to take care of ourselves because God does that. But instead, what we do is we focus on serving others, seeing others first in humility, understanding that God has said I'm valuable. And so I'm going to trust that that's true. And if that's true, that means that I'm going to walk in confidence that I'm valuable. And if that's established in my life, that means that I can look out and I can see others and I can see them in their hurt as the Father sees them and I can genuinely serve them in a way that is truly going to make a difference in their life. This is what it means to be humble and to see others as more important than ourselves. He says, look out for the interests of others. Make others your main priority. You see, the life of a Christian is a life that is obsessed with humility. That means that as we are connected to one another with the same attitude and perspective as the Father, we passionately protect others from pride. For those who are really God's children, there are no political or social games. Humility and unity are not just an idea. They are commanded by God, empowered by His Spirit, and supernaturally expressed in us. We have a responsibility to see others as God sees them. Not because it's good for us. It's not because it's what's, what God told us to do, but because 
It is a natural expression of being one of his children. We have taken on an attribute of our father. There are things that my dad does that I realize every day, one more thing that I do just like him. And it's not because I made a conscious decision to do it. It's because I've taken on his mannerisms. Because I reflect him. Same thing is true for us. That we are called to reflect the natural idea and character of who God is. So, as he talks about this appeal for unity, and he talks about this appeal for us to see others first, then he moves into this divine example. Now, this example is the most incredible expression of of seeing others first ever in the history of the world. If you guys have never read Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, get ready, because this is the most incredible thing. So he points us, this is our, 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 third, our third point here, is a divine example. The best example is Jesus. So of, of the mindset of, of Jesus and how he took on the restrictions of, of being a human being, check this out. We're going to read verses 5 through 8. It says this, it says, Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existed in the form of God, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on the cross. Wow, think about this. Okay, let's take this out. We got, we got, a, we got a list here. Let's work through this. Okay, so what example did Christ make? Okay, the first example is this. Verse 6, it says, who existing in the form of God. That means what you might think it means. Jesus being God himself. Okay, so think about, think about Jesus, right? So is God bound by time? No, right? He's not bound by time. So Jesus is the same way. So Jesus is God. So he's in the form of God. This is, an, this is a description of what happened when Jesus made the decision to save us, to, to put his life on the line to save us. He's in the form of God. He is separate from time. He is holy and he is, he is incredible. And so he makes a decision to lay down his life in the form of God. He is separate from everything. His, 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 his ability to be everywhere all at once is a fancy word called his, his uh, omnipresence. His ability to know everything is called omniscience. So all of these things, he, he is God. But it says that even though he was in the form of God, look at the end of verse 6. He did not consider equality God, with God as something to be exploited. In other words, what he's saying is that he chose to not just fix it. If he's God, he has the power. He is the almighty power in the universe. He could just fix all this with a snap of his fingers. But here's the thing, is that God is not Thanos. God is not some Marvel character who, can, who snaps his fingers in a desperate plea to try to change everything the way that they want it to be. No, but the example is he's different. He chose to not just fix it. He says he, he did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. His form of God, he didn't want to exploit that. But Why? Why would he do that? Look at verse 7. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant. He emptied himself. That same power 
that he that he had his 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 omnipotence his his all power in the same way instead of choosing it to just fix it he chose instead to lay down that same power and take the form of a servant but not just any servant look at the end of verse 7 taking on the likeness of humanity and when he had come as a man he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. He went out of his way to live our lives, to know us better, and to share everything. He made himself a human being so that he could see things from our perspective. Think about these stories. Many of you grew up in the church. Think about the stories about Jesus. He went out of his way to experience things just so he could relate to you. This is God... God is, is not separate from us. He's not looking down from heaven with a quiver of, of lightning bolts waiting to, for us to mess up to throw them down on us. No, 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 no. He loves us so much that he wants to understand. He wants to serve us. He wants to know how we can be made right. And so he laid aside all of those things and he submitted himself to being a human being, not just to come and to save us and then jet out to experience everything. Think about the story of, of, of Lazarus, right? Lazarus is a good friend of Jesus's. Lazarus is living in a city about 20 minutes away, t- uh, two miles away. He could walk there. And he hears that Lazarus, his buddy, is really sick. What does Jesus do? He waits for several days to go see him. In fact, we know because he tells his disciples, I know that, that Lazarus is dead now, so now we can go see him. And his disciples are like, Lord, why would we go over there? That doesn't make any sense. And he says, I'll show you. So they go, they go to Bethany where he lives. And his sisters come up to him, Elizabeth and Mary. They come up to him and they say, Jesus, if you were here, you could have healed him. We, we wouldn't have to go through all of this if you were just here. And Jesus, he says, where's he buried? And so they go to his burial site, they go to his tomb. And he's standing there. And it says that Jesus, on purpose, he paused. And he wept. He took in that moment. He knew what was going to happen. He knew that the Father was going to call him to, to call Lazarus out of the grave. And yet he soaked up every moment that he could to understand what it's like to lose someone that he loves. Like we feel it. So that means that if you've gone through loss, Jesus made the conscious decision to experience that so that he could connect with you. If you've lost someone that you love, he has done that on purpose so that he can relate to you. He went hungry so that he could know what it was like to be hungry. He had a family so he could know what it's like to be rejected by his family. At one point, his family thought he was crazy and they tried to throw him in jail. He did all of these things so that he could relate to us, so that he could know us in intentional ways. He lived a completely human life, but not just so he could experience a little bit and then he jetted out because it was easier that way. It says that he became obedient to the point of death. All of it. He wanted to experience those last couple seconds where you're gasping for breath before you die. He wanted to experience what it was like to have his own creation beat him within an inch of his life. And on purpose... He restrained himself from fighting back. Why? 
so that he could know you and he could express his genuine love for you, that he is bonded to you through the Spirit because he wants to purely be able to connect with you and know you more. You see, we can never say that God has asked us to do something that's too hard because he's proven to us that the life of a servant is a powerful life. Think about what Jesus accomplished. The ultimate service, servant in the world. And yet, who is the most best-known person in human history? It's Jesus. Because a servant's life is a powerful life. It's rooted in the, in the most incredible example of all time. The sacrifice of Jesus. He chose to lay aside his power. Not because he had to, but because he wanted to. His love for us was so great that he chose to see life through our eyes. That Jesus, on purpose, he understood what Paul was talking about in these first two verses. That we are connected together, and that is why Jesus is the ultimate connection for the universe. He is the ultimate power in the universe because of what he did. Because of what he did. Now, check this out. This leads to an eternal prize. Look at verses, verses 9 through 11. So Paul goes on, he says, For this reason God has highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This eternal prize, this thing that elevates him above everything else is the heart of a servant. This is why Jesus is such a big deal and why God has elevated his profile. This means that Jesus is the ultimate power in the universe. God didn't just claim to be the master of everything. He proved it by serving us. He has authority to tell us what is and is not the truth because he is the only pure thing in existence. He is the only judge. He is the only one that can say what is and is not valuable. He is the only one who can say what is and is not true. Because think about who Jesus claimed that he was. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Jesus is the central access point for God. Jesus is God. And he's the ultimate expression of seeing other people first. Because he could fix it. He could change everything with a snap of his fingers, but he chose not to. Why? Because he wanted to walk in your footsteps. To love you more. He could have changed everything. He could have pulled, he could have called angels from heaven to save him from being crucified, but he didn't because he knew that you needed to be loved. Because God doesn't make mistakes. And that includes you. That includes what God has done in your life, both good and bad. Romans 8:28 tells us that he does works all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That means that if you are a child of heaven, if you are in this unified community, that means that everything that you've gone through, everything that you go through, everything that you will go through will be together for your good. It'll work together for you to be who God has called you to be. God doesn't make junk. He makes masterpieces. And he does it one moment at a time. He is not overly anxious to fix things. God plays the long game. And we should too. When we see other people, 
when we are fighting for unity, when we see division, when we call a friend out and we have hard conversations because we see they're not walking with Jesus, we play the long game because my discomfort in a small little moment where I've got to call you out or when you've got to call me out because I'm being a turd nugget, the truth is that God wants us to hold each other accountable because unity is so important to him. Because Jesus gave his life for us to be able to be unified and to know him better, to know him more, to feel his love and to understand what he has done for us. But this isn't just an acknowledgement of who Jesus was. We are going to confess with our lips. It's what the text says. We're going to confess with our lips that Jesus is Lord. But more than that, more than acknowledging who Jesus was, look at what it says. In verse 11, it says, or verse 10, it says, So to the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. What that means is that we will all submit ourselves to Jesus. Every single one of us. You tell me that there is no way you're going to submit to Jesus. I'm working on that. That's something I'm working on. It's, 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 it's like it's at the bottom of my list. It seems to get further and further down. The time will come when all of us will bend our knees to Jesus in submission to Him. And not only that, will we bend our will to His, but we will acknowledge who He is and His moral authority. Look at verse 11, it says, And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We are going to acknowledge His Lordship. The power of Jesus is not just limited to taking His rightful place as the authority in the world. This brings everything under the standard of Jesus. Everything. How we treat our unity, how we treat each other, how we look at ourselves, how we see that everything is connected. We have a responsibility to see things correctly. See, not only has God elevated Jesus to the place of ultimate authority, He will hold us accountable to His standard of unity. But the amazing thing about His commandments is that they come with divine rewards. God's Word tells us that Christ has invited us to share in His glory as co-heirs of the kingdom. The prize for a life that puts others first so that they can be made right with God is an eternity of true, pure community. In the book of Romans, Paul describes what it's going to be like in heaven. And he says that we're going to be able to walk boldly into the throne room of grace as co-heirs of Jesus. Think about this for a second. Imagine this in your mind. You walk up those steps to God's throne room and the angels open the door for you. They bow low. And you walk into the throne room of heaven that every other creature is dumbfounded to be there. But to every other creature... You are a son or daughter of heaven. And the angels look over in awe of you because the thing that makes you special is not anything that you have done, but that God has said that you're special. God has said that you're his child. He has chosen you. And so as you walk into the throne room to everything else, to everyone else, it is the most incredible thing ever in all of humanity. But to us, the children of heaven, this is like walking into daddy's office. It is a place where we're at home. 
It is a place where we have a, a place. This is our inheritance to be co-heirs with Jesus. He has been elevated up by God the Father to his glory. And what does Jesus do? In another act of, of, of servanthood, he lifts up his children as his co-heirs. This is incredible. This is incredible for us to know that when God sees us, when, he, when God sees his community, his family, his bride, the church, all of us together, he sees it with an incredibly personal eye. God has given us an, a, a, an opportunity to be able to see the world, to see each other through an incredibly godly and divinely powered viewpoint. Don't miss this. There are people in your generation young adults that are trying to live the nomad life. They jump from church to church. They chase this service or that service. I like this preacher. I like that preacher. They're looking for a message. They're looking for an experience, but they're missing community. God is doing something here. God is, God is moving in Tulsa. Here in a few weeks, we're going to have another gathering, another, another worship night between four different young adult ministries. And God is going to come together. He's going to bring all of us together in unity across denominational lines. We're going to do something incredible because unity is important. We will be the generation that unites. But we're not going to unite just for the sake of having the biggest crowd. We're going to unite because we are focusing on the rallying point, which is Christ. We are seeing each other with the Father's eyes. That means that we're not content to see our brothers and sisters walk in sin. That means that we're not content to see someone ruin their life with a bad relationship. That means that we're not content to see someone ruin their life with addiction to alcohol or drugs or sex. We have brothers and sisters in Christ who are trapped by sex. It is easier now more than ever to get a hookup. And I got to tell you, here's the thing. We have to be about unity. Not because it's important for us, but because it's important to the Lord. And we have to be people who thrive on the truth. What is the truth? We can no longer let other people tell us what is right or what is wrong. We need to go to the Word. We need to study the Word, be a student of the Word, and trust that what the Spirit tells us is true when no one else will listen to us. Let us be those people. Let us be the definition of a Philippians 2 Christian. Let us be someone who sees others first, just like Jesus sees others first. And let us respond as servants, servants that are passionate about being centered in Christ and rooted in the Spirit and seeing others with the Father's eyes.
What's up, everybody? This is Philip Jackson, pastor of young adults at Evergreen Church. I want to invite you to come to Reach. We meet every Tuesday evening at 6.30 at Evergreen Church, just east of Mingo on 111th Street. For more information, check out our website, reachtulsa.org. You can connect with us on social media and on Instagram by searching for reach.tulsa. Also, be sure to subscribe to our content for the latest sermons and updates. You can also find us on Spotify, iTunes, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Yeah, wash over us. Bring your glory down